Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Steve Ramirez is a writer, educator, master naturalist, philosopher, and outdoor adventurer who lives and writes in the Texas Hill Country. Steve has had an interesting career. From working alongside President Bush to university professor, I was intrigued to hear more about his life. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss his books, time in the Marine Corps, living life to the fullest, and more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Tales.com. With Mother's Day approaching, this is the perfect gift idea for any mom, grandma, or woman in your life. Tales.com is the easiest way to record your family memories, preserving them in audio for generations to come. If you're anything like me, the thought has probably crossed your mind that you should have your mom or dad write down their life stories. But the problem is that most people have no clue where to start, and so we never get around to doing it. That's why I've partnered up with Tales.com to give families like yours an effortless way to capture your family's most important memories. Here's how it works. Tales has professional interviewers who speak with your loved one over the phone or Zoom and record their stories. Then they deliver a studio-quality audio recording with all of those incredible stories that your family will cherish forever. It really is the perfect gift for a parent, grandparent, or any loved one that instantly becomes a family heirloom. Get started right away at Tales.com. Tales is offering $20 off your first episode to all Anchored listeners. Simply enter promo code Anchored at checkout at Tales.com. That's T-A-L-E-S dot com with promo code Anchored for $20 off your first purchase. I grew up in Florida on the edge of the Everglades. So even though I consider myself a Texan by heart and I've lived all over the world, but I grew up on the edge of the Everglades between the Gulf Stream and the Glades. So I had the best of both worlds. And it's before Florida became so populated and the water quality so damaged. and So I got to see it. Um, you can see them on camera. I'm not that young, except at heart. So uh, I got to see it when it was still really wild. That's, that's where I grew up most of my life, though I've lived most of my life here in Texas. So what's the story there? Um, living in Florida, before we get to Texas and how you got there, did your did your parents fish in Florida? It's a pretty fishy spot. Yes. my um, I grew up fishing and scuba diving with my dad and his boat, the Triton. 
Uh, so we were either out in the glades doing things you do in the glades or we were on the ocean and we were on the ocean every week. So I was on the water at least once a week. We would do two tanks of diving and then we would fish in between when you're decompressing and okay, fish yeah. before and after. So, no, I grew up fishing, uh, hunting and, uh, you know, close to the land. And uh, it's a really I wish more kids got to do that. I love seeing the pictures of your daughter with you. Yeah, it's been <laughs> because I amazing. wish more kids got to do what I got to do. Um, I did all the things that insurance companies don't want kids to do. <laughs> yeah. Climb trees and, you know, jump to the ocean. So, uh, yes, like a I was very lucky child. to grow. Proper childhood yes. really is what it right. should be. You've got to right? hold on and get hurt to learn. Right. Absolutely. But you know what? I know you said that you don't look that young, but to me, you don't look that old. How old are you? I just turned 61. Oh, and, oh, okay. You're older and, than I thought you were. That's so nice of you. So, you know, the thing is that I, it, I, my friends know this, that I feel, I've always felt really young. I still do. And um, so it's just a number and people say that, but it really is to me. I have to climb mountains a little slower than I did, uh, but I'm still climbing mountains. It doesn't really make a difference. And uh, I've had that kind of life where I've been, sounds dramatic, but it's true. I've been close to death so many times that I don't even worry about it because I figure nothing's going to touch me till it does. <laughs> so it's not a big deal. Just knock on it's wood right deal. now, wherever you are. I'm going to knock on it for you. Sure. <laughs> sure. It's, uh, but no, I, I, I feel young. This is going to, this is deep stuff, but I hope you don't mind don't with mind. an old soul. No. Um, I have a really dear friend that said you were born a grown man with a five o'clock shadow. <laughs> it's probably about true. <laughs> so in, and, uh, and I laugh a lot and that keeps you young. Well, what were your parents like? Were your parents pretty serious or were they fun? Well, uh, in my first book, I come right out and tell people that I uh, am a child who dealt with, I don't complain about any of this. It's no big deal, but uh, my father was was a very good man, and he raised me by himself. Um, my mother was one of the worst people I've ever known. <laughs> so, uh, very violent, very brutal. And um, but what that does, and I write about this a lot. You know, life is a choice, and all I did was learn more compassion the more brutality I saw as I got older. So uh, with Dad, I had a very good example of someone who is nothing but love and got us close to the to the earth and to nature and with my mother I got to see everything you should not be as a parent and as a person and that seems really harsh for someone to say that but I think we need to be able to be honest yeah. because it's a choice and as a marine and after that working in counterterrorism as much as I love finding the best in people I know there's some really dark stuff out there. Yeah. I mean, we will obviously go through this as we track through your timeline, but it's interesting to hear that about your mom. In reading your words, in reading your books, you very clearly like women. You can appreciate women yes. and the camaraderie and friendship and softness of women. So that's really interesting because you could have gone one way or the other. You could have gone, you could have, it could have made left you jaded and, had you hate women 
but it seems to have, uh, you, you seem to have overcome that and you truly do see the best in people. I do. And actually my very best friends are all female. So I'm one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, I was gathering about, that. I, I was kind of picking that yeah, up. Yeah. I, I, um, and it drives my wife nuts. Not that I have so many female friends, but because she's not a talker and I love having conversations that are deep and thoughtful and I see, I think in metaphor and poetry and everything, just the way my brain works. Uh, so no, I think everything in life is a choice. Hardship is part of how we learn and you take the punch, you get back up and you learn and you move on. So I've said before to friends, I threw my rearview mirror out the window a long time ago and I don't look back except to learn something. And I, it sounds cliche, but I always say I count blessings, not burdens. It's just life. So you're, you're right. I could be jaded. Uh, and I would say the PTSD that I experienced in the Marines and afterwards started when I was a kid. So, yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that. Where does all of this, does all of this play into your move to Texas? When did that happen? No, my move to Texas actually became, was something because of the Marine Corps. Uh, my best friend from the Marines, and I'm sad to say all my best friends from the Marines are gone. Uh, I'm the only one left from my little group. And, uh, uh, the last one passed away last year from suicide. Uh, so there's been a lot of that. But uh, one of my best friends, I would say he's like a brother. He's gone. He's been gone 20 years. Uh, he lived here. I used to come here to visit him. And it just became home. Uh, as my home in Florida became more something I didn't ex didn't recognize anymore. And that's not meant as a negative towards so many things that I love in Florida. It's just that my home went from a small community to three million people with concrete. Right. It just wasn't the same. Everything shifted and change happens. But, you know, we can learn a lot from songbirds when, when the habitat's not right, you move. Yeah. So you weren't six or seven when you moved to Texas. You were an adult or a, yes. a, a man at that point. Um, but yes. that's, that's really interesting. So just from a fishing stance, though, that means that you would have done a lot of that. The Everglades is, is different than the Keys, right? It's a totally different style right. of fishing. So what kind of fishing right. were you doing? Were you, I know that there's obviously bass over there. What else is out that way? Are there redfish? There are, but I never, I never fished for them. Uh, my dad was, you know, when you're a kid, you do what your parents do. <laughs> so you, it's not like I could drive myself somewhere. Uh, very often. So uh, I was either fishing uh, just offshore, off the boat, or in the Gulf Stream, deep okay. water. Yeah. Or we, and, and I only fly fish now. It's not because of any, any particular reason other than I love it. Uh, but I grew up, like so many kids, bait fishing and spinner fishing. So uh, we fished for bass. And I remember starting out, I started out with a cane pole with a bobber and a, and a piece of bait in the middle of a gator hole. So, uh, a gator hole. Is that a thing? I used to fish gator thing? holes. What do you mean? They oh, yes. Alligators create holes for themselves. Uh, this is even before we started destroying the glades. They, the glades naturally have their dry spells and their wet spells, and they would create indentations, holes for themselves where the water would stay. And so during dry times, we knew that 
you know, growing up there in the glades, we knew that you'd go out to the gator holes because all the big bass and everything, the bow fins and everything, they're being dragged into those holes by the currents and that's where they're going. So you have a concentrated habitat right there. Now, looking back at it as a naturalist, I'm thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't have yanked on those fish so much. They, they needed a break. Uh, but I didn't know that as a kid. Yeah, cool. That so is really cool, though. You find a gator hole, try not to stand on its nest because that can get ugly. Um, and it's it's old Florida. So I got to do that. Fish the Gulf Stream, the Bahamas. We used to go to the Bahamas several times a year and just um, – and this was a really great part of being a kid there. We'd fly over to the Bahamas. A friend of ours was a pilot. He had a house on Green Turtle Cay. Um, and we would stay for a week or two and just live off the ocean. Right. So the water was the cistern water. There was no other plumbing. We would swim out. Back then, you could collect conch and um, all the fish conch and and spiny lobsters you needed to eat. And I have to tell you, after those weeks, I got so tired of eating lobster. <laughs> now, I, now I never get to have a lobster. Yeah, it must be nice. Okay. Yeah, we had lobster and everything. So at, at some point, did you think to yourself, I want to become a commercial fisherman? Did, did any of those thoughts cross your mind? No. 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 It's like my guitar playing. I don't want to make business out of something. It's a pleasure. But Yeah, uh, I understand. No, I, I never did. I did have an interest in getting into wildlife biology. Oh, okay. So, and I studied for a year, but uh, when you don't have money, you you save it uh, while you're in the military to go to college. Okay. So is that one of the reasons why you made that decision to go into the military? Actually, no. Um, I mean, it was an extra benefit. I went in during a time when the benefits were really bad anyway, so it didn't really serve me very well. So uh, I went in for two reasons. One is the reason so many young men and women do this. And once you grow up a little bit, you you see the realities of it. And that's something we call patriotism. So I'm not putting down patriotism at all. I served my country 35 years. But uh, – but as a kid, you th- you're thinking differently than how the world actually is. So um, the uh, American embassy in Iran had been taken over. And I was part of, it's just like 9-11, uh, young men that I later tr- served and trained in the Marines. Uh, the embassy was taken over and I joined. So um, some of it was patriotism. The other part was I really wanted to do something challenging, transformative. So before joining the Marines, I was doing something really stupid. I was a bull rider. Um, <laughs> I'm not picking on bull riders, <laughs> but I did it just because it was was dangerous and scary and thrilling. So um, I rode bulls for a while. Uh, I have to be completely honest and say I was more of a bull faller offer than a rider. And, uh, so I joined the Marines because I wanted to do something that was really a challenge that was going to test me, and it did. And the other thing <laughs> okay. it did, I don't know what the core is like now. I hope it still is much like it was. But I found a place where we all work together for each other, something I missed once I got out. 
We all worked for each other. Selfishness went out the door. It wasn't permitted. Um, and it wasn't part of our culture. We looked out for each other. It felt great to be part of something like that. Did you have siblings? Or do you have siblings? Yes. Yes, two sisters, but they grew up separate of me. And when my father died, uh, we reconnected. Okay. So, so so really, though, you didn't have any other bro- You didn't have any brothers. And your siblings weren't that close to you. They were, I'm assuming they went with your mom. Right. By gotcha. law, they didn't have a choice. So, um, and you're getting in some really good deep stuff here. Well, it's, <laughs> so, it's, it's interesting uh, thinking about psychologically one of the reasons why you would have been drawn to that. And, and obviously patriotism is a huge part of it, but I can see at that point in your life why the brotherhood would be so, and loyalty and you know, being there for each other would be such a prominent part of your values. You know, the only thing I'll say is that um, I'm only loyal to my values. So if I was in a military unit and they ordered me to do something I thought was wrong, I wouldn't do it. I'd go to jail first. I know that. And that's how I feel about everything. I'm loyal to my values. But the kind of loyalty that, that I know that you mean is to doing something bigger than yourself to being a servant. And that hasn't changed for me. It's it, people hopefully read it in my writing when I'm writing about ostensibly fishing, but I'm not really writing about fishing. Well, you do a lot of writing about fishing and it, considering how busy you've been over the course of your life, I don't know how you've had that much time to fish. So where were you finding time to get all these trips in? Well, the, the recent uh, spat of books and articles and everything else that I'm doing in essays. That's over a number of years when I simply walked away from the rest of my life. So uh, I just made the decision that I've been there and done what I did. So I was, you know, the Marine Corps, criminal justice, uh, working in Homeland Security, a college professor. I've said to several young people, I think you should live many lives. And I have. So maybe half a dozen years ago, I decided to stop all of it, walk away from the money and the benefits and simply write and, and, and sink myself not only into nature, but into human nature and into surrounding myself with the best people because I spent 35 years with some of the worst. Mm. You know, yeah. I spent 35 years being armed with people trying to kill me. And I'm not trying to be shallow. I just genuinely don't know that much about that life, but I'm very curious about it. So do you mind if I ask you some questions? Not at all. Okay. If, I, if I don't feel comfortable answering, I'll tell you. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Okay. So you, you graduate school, you go to, you, you, how does it work? I'm going to sound really stupid here, but you join the army and then you get into the Marine Corps. Like how does that whole no, process work? They're separate, so there's, and each one has its own culture and subcultures. So you have the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and U.S. Coast Guard in our American military. And uh, the Marine Corps is part of the Department of Navy. Uh, Marines will tell you it's the War Department, but that's just part of the joke <laughs> that we say. Um, so I did a year of college in something I was being pushed into and wasn't comfortable with and decided to follow my own heart. And I joined the Marines. You just joined straight and I didn't have my college. So I wasn't an officer. My plan was to become a Mustanger, which means you start out as an enlisted man and, and or woman and become an officer down the road. Right. Okay. So, uh, you do it. you, and I'm really glad that I went in as an enlisted Marine 
and went to Paris Island, um, which I'll be returning to the area soon as I'm writing this third book. Where is Paris uh, Island? It's in South Carolina, and I'm going to be flying in, in just a couple weeks into Charleston to fly fish or redfish with a colleague while I'm writing this third book. And what makes this so neat is the last time I flew in there, I was a 19-year-old Marine recruit. Were you able to fish what? when you were 19? I mean, is that allowed when, when you're in the Marine? Oh, no, 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 no. No, okay. <laughs> no, when I arrived <laughs> I there, you, drill instructors no grabbed us. <laughs> no, when you arrive there, the drill instructors grab you and your life is not yours for three months. You don't move until you're told to move. Oh, you don't get a day you're off up. or like nights off or oh, anything? Oh, no, no, no. This is the core. You, you spend three months on Paris Island fighting to survive through it and and make it. And, you know, we started out with, I don't remember how many we started out with, but we lost a lot of cadets that didn't make it through. So Paris Island, at least then, was the real deal. Right. Okay. And I gotcha. It, so you're just there. They, they're they tearing you down so you can build back up. And I th know a lot of people think that is um, hazing, uh, but there's actually a brilliance to training that's done there when it's done right with the right people. What they're doing is taking down the ego, the selfishness, all the things we're hearing across the world right now, and then all the things we're seeing reversed, you know, depending on where you look, where people are helping each other. So, but they had to, they tear down that selfishness first. And some of that's shock therapy. It's pretty, pretty harsh. rough stuff. It's harsh. Do you attribute a lot of your personality and your outlook now to the training that you went through back then? It certainly helped, but I think what happened is I simply found my family when I went to the Marine Corps. Okay. Um, I think I fit in the first place. And uh, I wear my Marine Corps ring over my wedding ring, which is my wife's idea. Uh, first of all, because I broke my right hand in the Marines, story doesn't matter. <laughs> and it didn't heal properly, and I can't wear a ring on it anymore. And also because she said, you're married to both of us, so why not? Uh, I know I didn't, I didn't really get to fish much in the Corps. Um, there wasn't a lot of leisure time. But I've always wondered about that because I don't know if you've ever watched the Frank Moore story when he was um, he was overseas as well. And he was, I cannot remember, I think it was a French town that they were in and he always wanted to fish there and, and he never did. And to, I, he did go back in his 90s and was finally years later able to fish it. When you flew in, I'm assuming you flew in or did you? Yeah, you flew in. To various places. Did you did you ever look around at these places from the airplane and think what I would give to just be able to disappear and into that forest and just fish and hunt and never have to deal with any of this ever again? Sure, and eventually I did that. But um, and while I was over there, I hiked every chance I did. I just didn't always have the chance to fish. Oh, okay, but like Italy, Africa. I was in a unit called Africa Corps, and I was all over Africa. So, um, and my specialty was diplomatic protection and dignitary protection and counterterrorism. And uh, it gave me a great opportunity to do everything from see wildlife on the plains of Kenya and, and camp on the Masai Mara and climb in the rainforest of Mount Kenya, uh, the rainforest of Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, where I lived for almost two years. I've crossed the deserts in Namibia and hunted in Africa. 
South Africa, Namibia. So you get the, the picture. Yes. Uh, I, so you get every chance travel. I got. Yes. And every chance I had where they said, uh, we need someone for protection on this detail that's going into the rainforest with this group. Do you want to do it? I said, yes. Wait, so what does, and I'm, I know that I'm supposed to be talking about fishing, but I'm really interested in this. <laughs> so this, so detail. So can you give me like a real life example of what you would do well, for work? One thing I know I sense you and I have in common is we both love adventure. So um, I don't, I don't even now, I mean, think about it. I, I'm traveling more and doing more now that things I've never done before. Uh, just because I'd say, sure, why not? Let's do this. So I just came back from a trip to Alaska and I was doing things I've never done before. And I said, sure, I'll climb through the Tongass forest until we can go into the furthest tributaries to find coho. Sure. So um, give me those grizzly bears. <laughs> sure. Why not? Uh, you're, my, my point of view has always been, you're probably going to live. Uh, that may sound silly, but I always thought you're probably going to live and this is going to be really cool. And if you don't, well, you had a good uh, run. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So I said yes all the time. Yep, send me. Let's go. And I'm really glad I did. And I only got out of the core when I started saying no. But that's when you have to start thinking about somebody else. Plus, I'm not my wife. Where does becoming a professor enter the mix? At the end. <laughs> so I wanted to, you remember I said I wanted to be a Mustang or Marine. I wanted to be an officer that knew what it was like to be a sergeant. Yeah. Well, the same thing as a college professor. I taught um, criminal justice, criminology, homeland security, and counterterrorism. And before I wanted to teach all that, I wanted to do it all. So it took me 30 years before I felt that I knew enough beside the collegiate studies at graduate level to feel that I had a reason to stand in front of a group of kids and help them learn. Um, I wanted them to know I didn't just go through school and get my degree and start teaching from a book. I was there. I did it. So um, I thought that was really important. Yeah. And I loved teaching, but I don't love academia. Okay. That's understandable. Okay. Um, let's get into these books. A lot of people listening right now don't realize maybe that you have written three books. Is that right? Are we at three now? On the, on the third. On the third? Working on the third right now. I saw you teasing a fourth. Clearly, you're, you're, you haven't had enough punishment. I mean, it's a lot of work writing a book. It's work, but I have to tell you, it's my passion. I've been writing all my life. I just haven't been able to do it full time. And... Uh, there's a few other writers that have written quotes like this that fit me. If I couldn't write, I don't think I could breathe. Um, for me, writing, like being in nature, when I see, I like science fiction movies and stuff, but when I see people that are supposedly living all in space, I'm thinking there's no fish, there's no birds, there's no trees, and it's not for me. Yeah. You know, I take the trip just to go to the moon, but I want to come back here and take a walk in the canyon. So, uh, so, yes, and where were we on this? Well, in those three books, how many places have you fished? Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, I don't know a number off the top of my head, but I can tell you that I write all my, I told you, I, I think in metaphor and poetry. And I am very philosophical in my approach. So 
All my books have little hidden things in them. For instance, they're all 21 chapters. Yeah. I don't know how many people get that. Why is that? Will you tell? It's something yeah, I'll tell someday when we're sitting by on a river. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have various things I built. I, I want to tell some people, these people look for these things because there's metaphor in it. If you look at the front cover of Casting Forward, the first book, I wrote that one for several reasons. One is, uh, maybe this is normal for everyone, but I have had series of times in life in which everything I ever believed in just goes away. And things just vanish. And I was just helping someone's father. They asked me to talk to their father and I, he felt that way. And I said, what do you do when when it, all the things you were hanging on to, you've realized they were illusions? And that was the question. And the answer I have is you realize how free you are now to build your own truth, to find out, to explore. So casting forward really was my love story to the Texas Hill Country. I don't know if you've been here. Have you? I've spent a bit of time in Texas, but not fishing, just in the city. Not in the hill country. No. We need to fix that. Yeah. We have beautiful spring fed. I shouldn't be saying this because everybody's going to flock down here now. <laughs> but we have beautiful spring fed streams, limestone based streams. Most of them, some have granite. Crystal clear where humans have not messed it up. Uh, and we have an endemic species here, the Guadalupe bass, that thinks it's a really tough trout. It likes fast water. And... Um, it has a little of both qualities of bass and trout. And this is actually a great place for fly fishing. But it's also a place, I mentioned about Florida growing up there when I remember thinking as a kid, this is paradise. It's nothing but trees and panthers and deer and turkey. And, and that's all gone now where I lived. I'm worried it's going to happen here. So part I wrote Casting Forward about was to say, this is a unique place, and I have lived in four continents. I've never seen a place quite like the Texas Hill Country. It does remind me a bit of Africa, uh, and that's probably why so many African exotic species do well here. And uh, I also wanted to write it because Wait, it was a like, time when my... What, what is an African species that's in Texas? Sorry, I'm just fascinated oh, right now. Oh, no. There's so many here, and this is kind of a torn thing for me because part of what I read about is not bringing invasive exotic species into habitats. Uh, but they are, there are quite a few on the large ranches here that consider themselves hunting ranches. So we'll have everything from kudu and gemsbuck, which I've hunted in Africa and have no interest in hunting in, in Texas. Um, the only exotic I hunted in Texas, which you can maybe, you're, no one else is going to see it, but you're going to see that odd dad on the wall. Yeah. Um, I've hunted that in Texas. There's actually more odd dad here than there are on their native range now. Uh, so we have a lot of African game, and we actually have even a lot of Asian game uh, that are loose and wild here or on ranches. So, for example, Axis deer are pretty much everywhere here. And we couldn't get rid of them if we wanted to. Right. Okay. Uh, and they're they're from India. Uh, we have just quite a few species that you see. It's nothing to drive through the hill country and see a herd of zebra on someone's ranch. Wait, um, in Texas? Yes, they've all been put here. Ze Ranchers have zebra. What for? Yeah. Uh, they're using them. They either keeping them because they think it's cool, or they're doing it because these are hunting ranches. 
they may be a thousand acres and someone hot who doesn't want to go to Africa or can't afford it will come here and hunt zebra in Texas okay. or kudu. I'm going to have to wrap my head or, around all of this, but it's fascinating to yeah. hear nonetheless. Uh, for me, I want to fish for cutthroat in the river they came from. And I flew to Namibia to hunt kudu in Namibia, even though they're running around the hills around me. I, I agree so entirely. Yes. I want, right. If I was in Australia, I want to hunt Australian game in Australia. I don't want to hunt it in Texas. Which That's basically just, me. just means like kangaroos, <laughs> camels, because everything here has been introduced. You, you, you kind right. of adjust That's to it, thing. but at least they're not in big, That's you know, in high thing. fence areas or crazy farms or anything. Right. So, um, but yes, I totally understand where you're coming from. You don't go to British Columbia to fish for stocked cut bows. You know, you go there for steelhead and salmon. Absolutely. And I hope to do that someday. So, um, so casting forward is, and this is again, a metaphor, my home waters. And then I rippled out from there for the second book, which is coming out May 1st and uh, I'm very excited about it. And if people look at the covers, which you can see online, Casting Forward has calm water up top. It's the Frio River uh, with, or maybe the Guadalupe River. It's calm water up top. This is all the metaphor. On the bottom is fast running water. The second book, Casting Onward, has the uh, maroon bells of Colorado with calm, beautiful water and Aspen. And below it, it has fast running water. If you think about, this is, there's little things I'm hiding in there that are metaphors for life. Are you designing the covers? Yes. Uh, working with my with my editor, and I'm uh, I try to protect the people that work with me, their privacy and everything. But he is a wonderful editor for me, and he is so supportive. And so, um, like on the third book right now, I was doing the pictures today to send to him and say, "What do you think of these?" So you're Let's match them up and drawing see. them. You're doing all the. No, no, no. I'm, I, I look for, for photographs that we want to purchase to use. Okay. Gotcha. And then my artwork has been done by a dear friend who's, I know only doing it because he's kind to me is Bob White. Oh yeah. I saw, I saw him uh, in your book. So I figured you had a relationship there. One of the best people I've ever met. So just a, a great person. So casting onward, what I wanted to do one of the things we had here in Texas Hill Country is parks and wildlife. They now know this was a wrong thing to do, a harmful thing to do, but they didn't know it then. They started putting smallmouth bass into the Hill Country rivers mm -hmm. to add more angling opportunities. And what they didn't realize, it was going to start causing the near extinction of the native Guadalupe bass because the smallmouth are dominant and they can interbreed, they can interspawn. So they've been working for 30 years now to turn that around and it's still a work in process we, but we do have rivers now that have pure guadalupe bass so what i did is i said hmm i think my next story is to go all over america and learn about various native species of cold and warm water fish and learn it through the eyes of friends old and new some of people i knew but the vast majority of these people are people like we're talking right now uh, I get to talking with someone like Bob White. The next thing you know, we strike up a friendship. Then I fly up to Minneapolis and we're fishing together. And now we've been friends for years. And the reason why that part of the story in the second book is important. The first one is just me alone or me and my daughter. Um, 
And except for my daughter, I have never fished with anyone beside my dad my whole adult life until now. Wow. Yeah, I know that's really odd. In casting onward, I'm reaching out to all these people and just flying out to where they're at and saying, show me your home water. And so it's a it's a layered experience for the reader. I want them to go with me and feel that water. I want them to go with me and even feel the mosquitoes, uh, the struggle. They'll find that I'm really open to making fun of myself and I've got much to work with. <laughs> so I want them to hear every time I screw it up, which is often. Uh, I am not an expert angler. On my best day, I'm mediocre. Uh, but I am passionate about the connection between us and nature. So that's what I did. And so I flew all over America. And uh, Chris Wood, who has become a dear friend, who's the president of Trout Unlimited, we got the idea while fishing together uh, of how I was going to start and finish the second book. So we started at the dirty end of the Potomac next to the White House and the Capitol in Fletcher's Cove. And I ended it on the clean end of the Potomac with Dustin Witcherman of Trout Unlimited as a biologist. And we're fishing the waters that have been restored and have native brook trout in them way up in the mountains. And it's all beautiful and natural looking and the water's clean because I wanted to end the book with hope. And that's the story, too, about the people. I hope I'm not going on too much, but I'm just sharing this with you. I wanted to show that we can take something like the Internet, which is tearing us apart or we're allowing it to, and say, no, I'm going to use it to meet the best people of my life. And I'm going to take the leap and just get on a plane and fly to Alaska, get on a plane and fly to Montana, wherever it happens to be. And we're going to fish together. And so many of us have become amazing friends that we, I mean, we communicate almost every day, a lot of us. So, uh, I mean, a lot of the time, I don't say every day, but a lot. And, I think that's part of the, the message here, too. It can feel so hopeless nowadays. And if you think about what I've been through, I, have to, I don't want to be too graphic, but I have seen an awful lot of violence and death and seen an awful lot of real human evil. And just like you said about the thing with childhood and abuse, you've got a choice to make. Am I going to become bitter? Or am I going to use that for something good? Also, becoming bitter just steals your own life, just like anger does. It steals your life. So uh, I was on the water a couple days ago, and I got my line all tangled up. And that's a good example of it doesn't bother me. I just, it's Zen practice. I just, okay, the wind got me all tangled, and I got me all tangled, and I just untangle. Okay, this is good. Well, it's interesting. No, well, I know a handful of Marines retired now. Half of them almost ended their own lives and the other half turned to alcohol and some of them, a couple of them are both. How did you overcome that? Because surely there must have been a challenge. You didn't just escape this unscathed. No, and you live with it for your whole life. So in the first book I talked, second one, I didn't get into PTSD too much. I wanted to focus more on the nature and the nature of people together. Um, but in the first one, I put it right out there. I 
have been at a point in my life a while, quite a while back, where I didn't know that I would make it either. Um, so your answer is a couple of things. The, the first one is I actually went through hypnotherapy in order to get nightmares to suppress. Did it work? It helped. Uh, I put it that way because I, I had one of my dreams last night. So, um, but it's not every night, five times a night anymore. It's here and there. It's whenever there's a, a, a bit of a trigger, like what's going on in, in the Ukraine. So, you know, when you see so much suffering, suffering has an impact on you that other humans may say, oh, that's just on TV. But I, I kind of get a feel of what's going on and I feel it I'm empathic that way. So how I got through it, that was the functional thing was I got I did get some help. And I think that my not just veterans have I worked with, but I've worked with women who have been sexually assaulted and people who have had child abuse. And I've been able to turn my own suffering into a gift. And that's what I would tell everyone. Just turn that around. Uh, I, I studied martial arts for many years. And uh, one of the ways you avoid a punch is only dangerous if you're standing in front of it. Just don't be there. Uh, I used to teach combat troops about avoiding being shot. <laughs> and, and I would say, uh, a firearm's only dangerous if you're standing in front of the hole. And, and the, you need to get away from the hole. <laughs> now, I, I had a more graphic way of teaching that, but I'm not going to say that here. So, uh, and that's the way it is in life, too, is just turn it around, take the hit, and turn it around. Use it for power. Be empowered. Don't be a victim. Right. And so to, to me, hardship every time, you know, it's like running a marathon. You just take it one step at a time. And yes, I have run a marathon. So I did it when I was 48 because when I was 47, someone told me I was too old to run a marathon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I trained for eight months and I ran a marathon. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I mentioned 
the obvious, the hypnotherapy and seeing a counselor who was, he was actually a colonel in the Air Force, even though I was a Marine, but he was an expert in it. And he did help me. He was also a black belt in Aikido. I had studied Aikido for years, so we had things together. But I have to tell you, just as an aside, I didn't believe in hypnotherapy when I started doing it. And I remember when he was bringing me out of it, thinking this is garbage. I've been awake the whole time, but I wasn't. I then had to hear the tape of what happened the hour I couldn't remember. So, um, so I do think the first message I have is get credible help. I do think there's a long way to go on that, but we need to take the stigma out of it. I'm no wimp. I have done a lot of things and I got help do it. Uh, the second thing is the real answer I have is two things saved me nature and fly fishing with that and love. And people can go, oh, he's going to talk about love. Yes, I am. Um, I write about love all the time. Nature and love. If you love a place, love people, you're not going to harm yourself. Because you're going to stick around for them. And you're going to you're going to put them first. And that gives you something to hang on to. And the next thing is loving the place. So for me, I could run out as a kid being abused when my father wasn't around to protect me. I ran out the door and stayed all day in the woods. Nature saved me. As an adult with PTSD, I ran out all day and played in the woods. So my answer is play in the woods. You know, surround yourself with positive people and let go of the rest. You can love people, but you can't save them. So you have to get away from the negative and you have to remember, I would also have to say, no, I'm no expert. I'm just sharing from my own experience. Remind yourself that PTSD is not who you are. It's just part of your resume. It's like high blood pressure or brown hair. That's all it is. It's, it's so um, I've told many people that have at, where I've tried to help them through this, where they've asked for it. You're going to be fine. You just have to tell yourself that you're going to be fine. And life is beautiful, even when it's tough. So when we first met and talked, I you asked how I was doing. And I said I could be on fire and I'd be great. <laughs> and that's true. As long as I'm breathing, I'm good. So nature saved me. And what I've written in some of my books are things like nature saved me. And I want to try to do my part to return the favor. That's why I'm writing. Gotcha. So the second book is all these watersheds and two saltwater areas, Cape Cod and then off the Texas coast. And now the third one is all saltwater and fish like salmon, steelhead. Uh, I'm going to be flying up to D.C. soon and I'm going to be fishing for American shad. But as you probably pick up, I'm not fishing to go fishing as much as I'm fishing to go and have a way to tell the story. What about the other things in your book that might be hidden? So we've got... Um, some of the art, 21, what else is in there in that well, list? I think there's a whole lot of anglers, hunters, and hikers they are going to learn about Sufi poetry for the first time in their life. Uh, they're going to get a whole dose of, of, of um, I'll say, mindfulness and poetry. Uh, I was worried when I wrote Casting Forward. I wish there's some there's some things I know about what's going to happen with Casting Forward, but I can't share them yet. Yeah. <laughs> but people should watch. There's things there's things 
happening that make me feel good because it is starting to help people and uh, hopefully nature. So uh, I think people should, if they're interested in digging into it, my writing is not happenstance. It is often poetic and there's a rhythm to it. And if they pay attention, I'm taking you on the journey with me so that you feel the pull of the water, so that you're speeding up when I'm speeding up and you're slowing down when I'm slowing down. I, I want you to catch your breath. You know, I want people to, to live this with me. Uh, and this is going to sound very mystical indeed, but it's true how I feel. I'm writing these books and these stories as a gift to give away. Does that make sense to you? Yep, it does. So. I, I live like I'm going to die today, and I have since I was in my 20s. I didn't expect to live this long. That's a very and that's a beautiful gift. It is. It's also a very emotional, not a burden, but a weight. Don't you feel? Mm. And I and I'm only speaking because I remember after my I had a really bad head on collision in 2008 that almost killed us, and I remember mm. praying to God, if you let me live through this, I promise I will never ever take for granted one more day, not even half a day. Just let me make this. And then obviously the crash happened and I woke up. And so I every, I was true to my word and every single day I lived it like it was my last, but it was exhausting because if I didn't make sure that every day was incredible, I suffered this incredible guilt, right? I would feel really horrible that I wasn't doing what I promised I would. And so trying to live life as a gift every day can be exhausting, have you it can that? be, but uh, I think I, I think I would. It gives me hope. See, I'm not looking for a perfect day. A lot of days I have are just like any other day, but every day I get to watch the birds come to the feeder, so that's pretty great. Um, and that's true. If I had, I'm here and I had the flu. Um, I remember, and this is part of my kind of mystical Buddhist thought, uh, I have to say that, and I'm not religious, I'll just say that I am spiritual, and I know that people throw that around in a lot of ways, but I'm very, very spiritual. And I would say that I always remember everything is temporary. The happiest times we have are temporary, and the hardest times we have are temporary. So you just keep going. And I'm not looking for... Um, I feel it's an urgency that may be a little difficult because I'm trying to get some things done while I still can. I know this sounds odd, but no, no, no. That's what I'm talking. That is what I'm talking about. That, yes. urge that urgency. That doesn't sound odd at all. Yeah. And it's tough. You have to make sure that you're actually enjoying now. And I think I am doing that more than ever because I'm doing what I think is right. I'm not on anybody else's schedule anymore. I also not making any money anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, uh, but yes, uh, it can be exhausting, but I think it's worse to, to not live with purpose and meaning. And I think we, I mean, who am I? I'm just telling you what, for me, uh, but for me, we create our own meaning in life and our own purpose. And I don't think there's, for me, there's no meaning given to me. I have to do it through my choices. And when I make a mistake, I've got to forgive myself. That's probably the hardest thing. That's the hardest thing. When you're trying really hard to do well, 
and you're going to fall down. Um, you got to be able to forgive yourself, learn and move on. Yep. I love it. Um, let's dive into some of this fishing stuff because you've done too much incredible fishing to just walk past it. Hemingway, did you have some sort of admiration for him in your childhood? Where did you pick up on Hemingway? You, you hit on a perfect thing. Yes. Hemingway did in my youth really touch my life. I mean, I, uh, mostly short stories. And when I, and some of them, especially the Nick Adams stories, they hit me very viscerally. Okay. I've done that. I have been in a situation where I do not want to go to sleep because I know the nightmares will come. Or in his story, he's afraid that if he goes to sleep, he won't wake up. Um, so I've been there and I've fished the river in my mind in order to keep myself okay. So, um, so yes, I would say he's not the big influence on me now, but in my youth, he certainly was. Uh, and, and I also have always loved his short declarative writing that was clean, but then also the way he could create a feeling where you knew you were there. So for example, if you read Farewell to Arms, some of it takes place in Italy where I used to live. Mm -hmm. I kind of had a professor get upset with me when I got out of the Marine Corps and she was trying to say all the symbolism that was in the book. And I said, no, actually I've been there. It just looks like that. He's just telling you what it looks like. And the same thing in Africa, I was in the same camping area where he wrote uh, in the same area where he wrote um, Green Hills of Africa. I spent quite a bit of time there and it just looks like that. He did a beautiful job descriptively. I do have other writers that as I've gotten, you know, that have had more impact on me more recently, but Hemingway definitely did have an impact uh, in understanding some of the rough things in life that I experienced. And also the idea of doing what you knew you had to do, even if it was going to cost you everything. Right. Yeah, that because makes if you sense. think about it, whether you're a medical personnel who's going in to deal with people with deadly contagious diseases, or you're a Marine, or you're a police officer going through a door knowing that there's someone at the other end that's shooting people, or you're a firefighter, or whatever it happens to be, um, you're a teacher teaching during COVID, you're stepping forward to do something for someone else. It's the greatest form of love. And that's what I pulled out of those stories. Not all the macho. Uh, I served with a lot of strong, tough people, male and female, and none of them are macho. When I see macho, you know what I mean by that term? When I yeah. see that, I think, okay, you're putting on a persona. If you, if you really had nothing to prove, you wouldn't be trying to prove it. Yep, yep, no, I've got you. You can see me. I'm laughing. I'm smiling about it because... It, to me, it's like people play acting. Yep. It's, not um, I, it's so funny. I, I think, you know, everyone looks back at their career and blushes over certain things they've said or done. And once upon a time, I was being interviewed. And to be fair, I, I the carrot was dangling and, I, and they only used a sound bite. But I said something along the lines of being a badass. I said, I know I'm a badass when fishing. And, and, and in the context of the conversation, it actually worked. But with a sound bite, it, it actually 
comes across quite ridiculous. And I know that one of the guys, I think he was in Marine or Marines or something, just thought that was the most ridiculous statement he'd ever heard because obviously knowing a lot of the people who are true badasses, <laughs> that sounds so stupid. Oh no. I still I, blush I, over I still blush over it to this day, but yes, macho and badass. Um the people who are truly actually, macho I don't and, think you should at all because this is our first meeting. Uh, yeah. But just what little I know, you are a badass. <laughs> and uh, I have another friend and I just saw some she sent me some of her fishing at Pyramid Lake right now. And I said, you are such a badass. But the machos and the badasses don't say it and they're quiet and you don't even know, you know, and, and that's what I think I like about you is that you're so unsuspecting. You're jovial, you're thoughtful, you're poetic. Sure. All of those things. But I would, I mean, to be able to dive into your brain and see the things that you've seen would just be, which I mean, I guess we are doing to some degree in your book. Some degree. Yeah. Um, I'm but certainly going to protect y'all from some of it. But but before I lose what my thought process was, um, I know when I read Hemingway and I read Zane Gray, I just want to hop in an airplane and go somewhere crazy far away off into the jungle and the tropics. But y- you do a lot of of exploration and adventure in your own backyard. I mean, in, in America, have you, sure. have you found that there's something quite rewarding about finding these adventures and these relationships really just one state over or two states over? Yes. And of course I've done it in Europe and Africa and South America and North America. So I have gone far away and the advantages of some of that is the shift of culture, the shift of food. So when I'm writing, I'm also not just writing about fishing. I'm writing about the food. I'm writing about the music, the culture, the people. Uh, as best as I'm able to. But often I'll be in some exotic place and I'll think to myself when I'm exhausted, you know, and covered in mosquitoes or whatever it happens to be, and, and I'm just tired, it's been a long trip, and I'm glad I did it. But I'm thinking I'd really like to just be on the Llano River and fish for a couple hours back home and then go over to the Taqueria in Mason and get some tacos and sangria. Uh, so I also say, have I done things people would say, well, that's badass. Of course I have, and, and e- even this year frequently. Uh, but that's not who I am. I would rather just fish for a few hours with a friend or alone and then go get some tacos. And, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, and so yeah, the, big time, <laughs> like more than ever, I know what you're saying. Yes. The adventure for me is there's all kinds of adventure. Uh, my my daughter lives in the UK, and I'm going to be careful because I'm supposed to. I really want to protect her privacy, but she has a master's degree in outdoor education. I've totally messed up that poor girl's life by taking her on adventures and getting her the bug. So she has traveled all over the place, and she worked in Iceland and uh, Montenegro, and led expeditions in in the mountains of France, and you know all that sort of stuff. And I flew down to Peru and we did that and all that was great. But the truth is I have just as much adventure right here. Yeah. Uh, And the adventure is, I think, in how we approach it. I actually feel kind of, I want to be careful how I say this, not because I'm trying to be careful because I try not to cause any harm. Are you picking that up about me? Yeah. So, uh, I feel people are often, and if this is where they're at, it's fine. That is your path, your journey. But I don't want to go to a place 
and I'm not worried about how many fish am I going to catch and what's the poundage. That's just me. I want to know, am I grabbing all of this? Am I experiencing it? And if you can share it with someone who also gets it, wow, that's adventure. And I'd rather do that here than fly across the world and have it be one of these things where I'm with someone who says, okay, now we got to do this. Now we got to run to that. Now we, well, you've missed everything. You're going too fast. There's a story coming out in, in Fly Fisherman. It might even be out now that I wrote um, about my 60th birthday. And I was with a friend uh, who invited me to go fish up in this little creek in the hill country. And she, uh, we're catching stalkers. You know, it's a, it was a nice day out in the water. We're catching stalkers. I'm releasing. I caught a few. And then I went and sat on a rock between two waterfalls and just watched nature. And at the end of it, she said, you realize I outfished you. And I said, and you should know me well enough to know that I don't give a damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes for me, the adventure is just watching the deer. Uh, I go hiking in the river. I'll snip off the fly and say, okay, I think I'm going to hike a mile up this river and just watch it. And I'm not fishing. And there's other times I'm uh, bearing down and fishing hard because it's, you know, that's what it's calling for right now. Yeah. But Adventure comes in all kinds of flavors. Do you think it's just that your your values have shifted, right? I mean, your values have shifted, it sounds like, towards time and, and quality of that time being spent. The truth is it's just intensified because I've been through more, but I've always been this way because think about it. It started out with a rough being a kid, you know. Um, I've always known everything is in is impermanent. I saw my first person die when I was 12. Um, it's always stuck with me and not in a dark way. In a wow, let's look at what's beautiful here right now. I, I refuse to let the things going on in the world tear me down. And I hope I'm making sense when I say that. And by the way, that's a bad habit with me as a teacher. I always say to the students, now, does that make sense? Tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I, I think I've always wanted adventure. That's why as a kid, I ran out the door as soon as I could escape and I just took off into the woods. And it just seems like that's what life's about. Well, and yeah. Sometimes adventure is having the tacos. Right. And the sangria, and obviously. The and the sangria. That's the adventure right there. <laughs> you had me at sangria. But it's funny. I think back to why I used to fish and it was never the numbers. I know some people it's numbers, but when I look back at why I used to fish, it was the heartbeats. I wanted to have as many experiences as possible in a day that had my stomach in my throat. Is that a bear? Am I going to make it through this rapid? Is that an enormous fish? Am I going to fall down that mudslide? I loved the crazy adrenaline pumps. Um, and now, because I just don't, well, first of all, I can't die because of Adelaide, my daughter, but also I don't have as much time. I know that I've shifted to just valuing the time and and the quality of that time. And so I'm curious with your evolution, it sounds like not only quality of time, but quality of, of time spent with people. Yes. And the flip side of that, by the way, I love the name Adelaide. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, one of my best friends, her daughter's name's Adelaide as well. So um, it's also quality of time with 
the people who add to your life and who you are adding to their life and having the courage to step away from the others. Invite them to make choices to change, but don't let people. I do not go fishing. I have to say this. I won't go fishing with someone who if I think they're going to take away from the moment. I don't care how expert they may be. Uh, I want to enjoy this with them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I read that in your in your book. One of the things that made me chuckle, um, especially working in the quote unquote fly fishing industry, was you'd made mention of people who only who say that they only fish with their uh, clients and fans. I think is what it yes, what you'd said. I have and been told that. I just thought that was the, the funniest thing I've ever read because it's so true, and I I, I laughed that you've experienced it. Yes, that actually happened with me. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to say. <laughs> it's happened a number of times, actually, where I've uh, come across someone um, who is, I guess, a rock star. And, um, a, a and, badass. And I've, and, I've, <laughs> and I've said, I said, oh, well, if you're you're over here, we'll go fishing sometime. And, and this particular person, one in particular, said, uh, I only fish with with paying clients and and fans. And uh, and they told me they have fans all over the world, so they're never lonely. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I said, I actually answered and I said, I only fish with friends. So, um, great response. And that's, that's true. And I have found that before I'm flying off to fish with someone, like I'm about to, or to go to South Carolina, he and I have spoken many times on the phone. We've realized that we're, we're, you know, simpatico doesn't mean we think everything the same. I wouldn't like that anyway. I surround myself with people, different points of view. And I'm going to go learn the, the Louisiana, I'm sorry, the South Carolina low country through him. And you know what? We'll have a great time and we'll probably be friends for a long, long time. Uh, and that's been what's so awesome. I was just communicating with my friend Kesley Gallagher out of California. Uh, we fished together on the coast, but the first time we fished together, we had never even met. And, uh, and I uh, was teasing her about how serious we were being at the beginning. And so when we took a picture together later and she went to hug me, I shook her hand just being this smart ass that I am. So, and we've become great, great friends. And I have many people like this. I, I shouldn't say like many, but it's just when you're genuine and they're genuine, we have a good time. And some days the fishing's fantastic and we're getting one fish after another. And sometimes they're big and I love that too. And I was almost ashamed of myself when I got caught up in the idea of big fish on Pyramid Lake. And I thought, no, don't be like that. Uh, I'm human. Um, but the reality is, it, I was just fishing on the Texas coast and we didn't catch anything. I had a great time. We yeah. only saw well, three fish. <laughs> and it was still fun. But speaking <laughs> of being snooty, this is actually a great segue. So do you remember, I don't know if you'll remember this, but 10 years ago, fly fishing for bass, even though it was awesome, it's always been great. Fly fishing for bass had a, a kind of a, a, there was an attitude with certain anglers who would be like, oh, you shouldn't be fly fishing for bass. You should be fly fishing for trout and other species, but not bass. It was kind of poo-pooed. Do you remember that? There's so many flavors like that that pop up. I probably laughed. Uh, so I think I kind of know what you mean. Uh, but the rivers, I, surely they must have been quieter back then. Have you noticed that over the last decade there's been a lot more traffic? 
Well, I have to say that everybody that fishes in the Texas Hill, I shouldn't say everybody, but most people fish in the Texas Hill Country go to the same place, and they're going for stalker trout that some people are trying to say are living their wild, but they're not. And that's where they're going. I go up into the streams where no one else is. So if I see another angler when I'm there, I realize I failed to choose wisely where I'm at. <laughs> and I was a little worried right in casting forward that I would, in trying to save this place, end up ruining it because I don't want it to get inundated. Um, I, I like being alone out on the water or with my friend, even though, yes, I have been those places where it's an angler every 50 feet. Uh, but that's not my not my game. So back to what was your question again about that? Is it busier? Have you found it? It's a lot busier. I, I, more people are finding, and I think it's good to a point. Uh, we and I write this all the time. We save what we love. We love what we know. I want people to understand that that sort of thing makes me laugh because uh, it's as if there's some sort of hierarchy to fish. Only humans do stuff like that. So, I mean, certainly the animal world has its hierarchy within it. It's part of a social structure, but we, we make an artificial um, situation like that. I have to tell you that, uh, you, you know, from my past life, part of what I used to do is protect people that were famous. And uh, I used to protect uh, President Bush, the first one. Um, and he was as down to earth as you could be. And, uh, and Barbara was always trying to feed me. And, um, so it makes me laugh, but the, I do think more people are understanding that you can fly fish for anything. That fly fishing is not there. It's no rules. Just right. Uh, other than rules of, of being decent to each other and to the fish, to the water. So we are looking at times in which the water is getting warmer. We do have to be, I do think we need to pay attention when we, we're actually killing fish and we think we're saving them. Um, if you're going to fish them in really hot water and you know you're going to kill them, then you should be eating them. <laughs> so, But that's just me thinking that. But yeah, I, I think fly fishing has gone through its booms. And it's doing that again. And I think more and more people, uh, I've got friends in Alabama that are fishing for red-eye bass there. More and more people are learning there's very varieties of bass. I'm really a, in love with bass angling on the fly. Mm-hmm. It's probably it's one of my favorite things. I would say another one is, which a lot of people may not get into, is I love doing small streams up at high elevation and, and just being tactical and figuring it out. Because I have to immerse myself in that creature's life i have to uh as a friend of mine who's a biologist in alaska he says you have to pierce the mirror and look down there and i have put on my snorkel and mask and just jumped in and said well let me let me see what's down here let me see what it looks like uh that's anything that really really surprised you any surprises no only when i find something human under there that shouldn't be (laughs) right so so uh no i i I think what's interesting is just watching how nature has so much to teach us about what we're missing. And what I mean by that is everything is more metaphor for me. So when you you look at uh, when I used to keep, I I was also a counter bomb instructor as well. 
And I used to teach people how to be protected from bomb blasts and things like that. Well, it really is like watching a river where the water hits the rock, goes around, there's a little protected area there, and then it smashes together. It's pretty much the same thing. Oh, really? When we look at trout, well, first thing we can learn there with trout is that there is no such thing as fair in nature. It's something we've all made up. There's no such thing as justice in nature. If the trout picks up the mayfly, it's good for the trout, bad for the mayfly. If it misses the mayfly, good for the mayfly and bad for the trout. It's not fair. It just is. So I think there's so much we can learn by. And so when you look down in the ocean, you look down in the rivers, in the lakes, you start to see what's really there, not what you thought was there. You start to see how it all connects. You, you notice that one of the things I've written a lot about in the second book is, for instance, uh, if you're fishing for Corbina or if you're fishing for something on the East Coast that's eating, depending on where you're standing in America, mole crab, sand crab, sand flea, same animal. You have to learn that there's so much resting on that little crustacean and it all collapses if that's gone. And it's got so much resting on little zooplankton. And if they're gone, it's gone and the other things are gone. So I think when I get into water, I can really see that. And I can see the way the, the landscape underneath the water changes the way everything lives. And if you think about it, even in our own life, our atmosphere is like the river. Could you imagine if our atmosphere routinely dried up and we started to see the sky come down below us? And we wondered if we'd have enough oxygen to survive. And so I kind of look at, I look at fishing like that too. I'm, I'm in that world. That's an adventure. You know, picking up a rock and seeing what's living under that rock in the water, you know, you can look at it as an entomologist and say, well, what bugs is this that helped me pick my fly? Or you can say, wow, this is teaching me a lot about my river. Uh, when the frogs explode, you know, you have good water. There's frogs there. Uh, but recently, there were frogs exploding in the dead of winter here in Texas, and that shouldn't have been. Right. And there shouldn't have been blue bonnets popping up in January, but they were. And I think as anglers, I want us to start paying more attention. You don't have to read a book. You just look at the river and you can see this is different. The birds are showing up before they should. Yeah, I mean, if anyone should be attuned to their ecosystem, it's us in a lot of ways. Right. If we take the time to sit on the rock and notice, if we're not so busy trying to hammer the water and don't get me wrong, I fish and I'm methodically working that water and I love catching fish. And if it's a big one, I'm thrilled to, uh, but it doesn't make or break my experience. And if the tacos aren't as great as I hope, the sangria will be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you have a favorite chapter that you wrote? Uh, in the first book, Casting Forward, definitely um, there's two. One is a very short chapter, and it is called um, Joshua Creek. It's very, very short. And that chapter is going to come back, and people are going to see it in a form that I wish I could tell you about, but it's going to come out. It's a powerful chapter, I believe, and I think if you can only read one chapter, read that one, even though it's very brief. The other one is Devil's River. And I wish that we could do something here to make the Devil's River become an American Wild and Scenic River. But it is a river that goes through the Chihuahuan Desert on the edge of the hill country. 
and is surrounded on desert on all sides. And that river is life. It's a ribbon of life to the Rio Grande. Uh, that's one where I took my daughter to help her make decisions. So in, in casting forward, we didn't know what we were going to do with our lives. And she said, Dad, what do we do? And I said, here's our plan. We've got no plan. We're going to go fishing until it reveals itself to us. So those two in that book. In the second book, it's really hard for me to pick. It depends on what you're looking for. You know, fishing uh, off Cape Cod with Ted Williams is an adventure that I survived because he is the toughest angler I've ever been with. He doesn't. You have to tell us one of the stories. Tell us a story from, tell us one of your favorite stories from the book and maybe let's start with the Ted Williams story. Okay. Um, When I got to Ted's house, Donna, his wife said to me, well, now you get to be in the next book. And I said, what book? He says that I survived Ted Williams book. When he turned 60, we, we had one with all the people that fished with him who had survived it. And now he's turning 70 and you, you get to be in the next book. And she seemed very worried about me. And as you might guess from the life I've had, um, I'm not a wimp. Uh, but Ted, Ted outdid me by far. And uh, so we hit the rack, as I would say, at about 1130 at night. We were up at two. We hit the road at 230. We're on the boat before sunrise. We're out at the ocean. And how Ted fishes is he says, you know, here we are. And you you cast and swing and catch bluefish and stripers until the fish are worn out. You just keep catching and releasing and catching and releasing to the point that we were having seals come around to see what we were doing and why we were throwing our food away. And Ted doesn't photograph anything and he doesn't measure it. And you don't stop to do such a thing. It's catch, release, catch, release. When the fish are worn out, he says, hold on. And you run to the next rip and you fish like that for hours and hours and you chase the birds and you follow nature and you see where the fish probably are. And you fish until I was shaking my arms out and my, my spinal damage was starting to show itself. And we fished until it was getting so dark we had to come in. And at the end, I saw two young women kayaking out of the cove. And they said, any luck? And I said, did you catch any? And I said, a lot. And he said, a few. And I realized how far I had to go. Um and he had said to me, I said, thanks for taking me fishing, Ted. And I was so exhausted. By the way, there's no eating. There's no drinking. As we were bumping from one space to another, I grabbed a caffeine drink that I had in the cooler and I shoved it against my mouth so that every time the boat would slam down, some would go down my throat. <laughs> I could stay awake. And and we listened to uh, his music on the way in through the dark and I said to him, thanks for taking me fishing. And he said, oh, thank you. I mean, I'd love to go fishing. And no one ever fishes with me anymore. And I said, why, Ted? And he said, they're not serious. They don't want to fish hard. They don't want to get up at two in the morning. And so, yes, I can fish really hard. But I'm just as likely to spend four hours on the Lano and then go for tacos in Sangria. (laughs) But it was a great adventure with uh, a man who is in his seventies and is tough as nails. There's just one example of one kind of story, but there's others in there that that one's high speed. There's others where it's 
me and my friend Cinda Howard, and we're going up through a canyon with her dog, uh, searching for Gila trout. And it's more mystical and silent and quiet and dapping. And they're varied, as is the landscape in America and the and the and the people and the culture. Uh, and you were saying, is there a favorite chapter in that book? I would say that one of my favorite chapters in that book, beside Ted Williams and the one I did with Bob White going down to St. Croix. But if I had to pick just one chapter, it's me and my friend Eileen Lane, and we are fishing in a ghost town in, for desert red bands that are, you know, eight inches long, 10 inches long. And they're living in the middle of the desert, going through a ghost town. And that's one of my favorites um, because the whole place felt creepy. I love ghost towns. Is this the one with the eerie hotel where parking was on the street? No, that's the Hilo. That's the Hilo. Okay. You did read that one. I like that one too. That's the one with me and Cinda in the Hilo. But that is a spooky hotel. Why was it a ghost town? Did it use like a gold panning town? What happened to make it? Be- I, I love ghost towns. So I'm just curious about why. This is an interesting way. story because I actually wrote it in two. It's two separate fishing trips put together in one trip. So it was me and my friend Eileen. And we're the first time we're in this ghost town. And what it is, is a silver and gold mining town from the old West ah, that's what I thought. that has you know, it's still there. There's even a couple people living there, but I have to tell you, they, I, you'll, I don't want to give away too much to the, about the chapter, but it, uh, you can find yourself wondering, are they really there? Yeah, right. Ooh. They're, they're sitting on that empty house, just staring into space in the chair, and they don't react when you wave. Um, so we started there in this ghost town um, in Idaho in the desert. And then we went to a canyon that I did change the name of because the, the trout habitat there is just too sensitive for me to go ahead and tell everybody run down here and, and slaughter this little river, this little stream. And I wanted to write about it, too, because it's an ephemeral stream that comes and goes. You know, it loses part of itself like we all do. And But it's a super important habitat for these um, desert red bands. And it's another one of those places. And the reason these stories are together is because in the ghost town, the history of that town is people killing each other over gold and silver and slaughtering Native Americans to push them out. And it feels like that. I walk the graveyard in the ghost town and we read the stones. It feels that darkness that they left there. That's what you feel. And the other place, there's a little homestead in this canyon and it's beautifully set there. It's just the walls that are left, but you can see the life these people had. You can feel it, and it feels happy. Do you see what I'm saying? It feels joyful. I put the two together. I think that if people haven't experienced those towns and those places and those sites and those graveyards while fishing, they're seriously missing out. Because I know for me, especially as a young woman, those moments and those that energy good, bad, otherwise spooky, all of those experiences made the trip, made the adventure. I mean, the Thompson River and fishing across landslides, There's, you know there's bodies in there and mystery, treasure. I mean, oh, just all, all of those stories to me are, are part of why fishing in these wilderness areas are so special. 
okay, but I'm just going to be the big kid that I am and say, I might be really disappointed if we don't get to fish together sometime. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I have this feeling and, and my friend would turn to me and say, what do you feel here? Cause you do feel an energy. And in the, in that one graveyard, I felt the tragedy of it all. And at one point I looked and I thought, geez, no one's keeping this graveyard up. It's all full of, and I should know better. I'm a naturalist. I'm so full of weeds. And I said, no, it's perfect. I realize what these are. This is the native flowers that have grown back. And every grave was looking at the river, at the stream. So the graveyard felt almost peaceful, but tragedy. Yeah. The, the town felt to me the energy of all the darkness and anger and greed and fighting. And you think about what's happening now in the world in Ukraine and other places, the things that I've seen, it's such a waste of our time. We really could just be getting along and helping each other. And yeah. I think that's what I've seen in my journey. That's why I'm so adamant about what I'm writing about, what I'm doing. As I go to one place, the fish are there. They're like the little bit of hope. Those fish have survived all of this. And I hope they keep surviving. And they're teaching us right there. In both places, the fish are there. But one place is peaceful and kind. And the other place is nothing but darkness. But we made it. You know what I'm saying? Humans. Yep, I do. It all makes sense. Um, I think that your books are fascinating. I've got questions about some of the other um, chapters and, and the future of the book. I, I need to know about this 21. Did something pivotal happen in your life when you were 21? Did you find yourself or lose yourself? No, it's just a weird thing about me that certain numbers resonate with me. There's no good reason for it. I have certain numbers that, that keep coming up in my life and things keep happening on dates. Oh, and it's a weird part of who I am, and I, I don't want to get too mumbo-jumbo here, but I'm forever, ever waking up at exactly 4.44, including this morning. Um, I don't know why. I am forever having something happen at 11.11. I don't know why. Um, and 21 is a reoccurring number in my life, and, and I don't know why. It just, and it could be one of those things where you're noticing it, so you keep noticing it. It's just a, a mind trick. But the other reason I've used things like that is because I keep hearing with COVID, everybody keeps saying, I can't wait till we get back to normal. We can't get back to normal. And the way, the way we survive and what nature teaches us is we adjust and we adapt. And there's no such thing as normal. Change is the only thing that's normal. So if we just understood that there's change and we're going to change with it, we, we could all chill out. And uh, But with that said, the way I get through a lot of the things I've been through is you, you can build some consistency. You know, It may pour rain on the day you wanted to go fishing, but you still know you're stopping at Senor, Senor Rosato's for the tacos. And the, in the, you, know, you know you're going to do that. So I build consistencies into my writing so that my readers will think, oh, there's that again. I see what he's doing here. Um, as a college professor, my students started a Facebook page a long time ago because I used to call ones that would take my classes over and over again. I call them my repeat offenders. And so they started their own page of 
multiple years of students that took Professor Ramirez's classes, and they were called the repeat offenders group. And I had generations of students. And the thing is that they all could communicate because they had experienced some of the same traditions in the learning. So I do build certain things in there so that people say, oh, it's like a comfort thing. I can look at that. I can look at that chapter and I know what he's doing here. I know what he's doing with the music of the words. And I want it to be a conversation like you and I are having. It's a human spiritual conversation. I want them to read the words and think, I'm home here. You know, I get this. I, I remember this. Um, well, look, I'm very excited to see where your next few books land you. Do you, what's next for you? You're 60 going on 40 and it seems like you've got lots of energy left. Well, um, you mean beside us going fishing, what's next for me? Um, well, I'm, yeah, I'm working, nice. <laughs> I'm writing this book, Casting Seaward now. So I'm traveling all these saltwater venues. And, and, and when I do this, I do a lot of research. So I'm reading, I'm learning constantly. And I think that also keeps us all young. You keep learning and learning. After that, I, I'm not going to totally give my hand, but I have a couple more uh, books lined up. One of them is going to have me traveling the world again. And one of them is going to be happy traveling close to home. So, uh, and then we'll see where it goes. You know, my plan is I have no plan, but, uh, but it'll be adventure and there'll be good food and wine involved. So. Perfect. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me before we do that? I just wanted to say uh, thank you for inviting me. I've completely enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Absolutely. And, uh, and, Thank you for uh, waiting for my voice to come back. For people who don't know, I called Steve. We were scheduled last week, and I called Steve. I could hardly get the sound out of my mouth. I totally lost my voice. So thank you for rescheduling and coming back on. It's my pleasure. Cool. Well, I'm going to post the links to your books. Um, it sounds like something very exciting is happening in May. So this episode will be live in two weeks. Um, can you give us any hints or tell us where to look? Well, uh, Casting Onward is completely released May 1st. It was perfect. originally going to be April 1st, which I loved because I think April Fool's Day was perfect. But it's May 1st. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of coming out now. And then uh, there's going to be uh, – I'll just I'll put this teaser out there. One of the books is going to be in a movie that's going to come out. I just can't speak of what's happening with that. And the reason that pleases me is I just want to reach more people with good messages because there's a lot of bad out there. Let's Let's look at the good stuff. Great. Well, I'm very excited to see it. Will you please keep me posted on that? Absolutely. Thank you very much for coming on and we will talk soon. Thank you so much. search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv